Tonight on Arena, Caroline Campbell, director of the National Gallery on her new book, The Power of Art, and architect Emmett Scallon, poet Lionheart on this year's Open House Dublin Festival. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the program at RTE Arena. Recently appointed director of the Irish Architectural Foundation, Emmett Scanlon has created an expanded program for this year's Open House Dublin Festival that has a focus on talks, debates, and exhibitions on Dublin and the future of the city including the Cities Have Feelings event. At this event, poet and broadcaster Real Lionheart Cape will look at how emotional, physical and social connections between people and their cities are formed and sustained. Delighted to be joined in studio this evening by both Emmett Scanlon and Lionheart, which is, I believe, is what I should call you, Real, so I'm going to stick with Lionheart. (laughs) But I noticed as our SIG tune was playing that not only are you... uh, architect turned poet there's also a secret dancer inside you is there am i even allowed to express these uh, dance moves of mine i can definitely dance a, a step or two i'm probably not as good as you though my friend <laughs> okay <laughs> let us talk a little bit Emmett, about yeah. open house yes. and what you what you want to achieve from it this year because I, I think you really have expanded things out a bit haven't you yeah i mean for the first time in 18 years it's now nine days instead of three so it's got much, much bigger. And that's mm. given us literally more space to talk about Dublin and the city of Dublin. And we also have four, all four parts of the city involved and county mm. uh, for the first time as well. So we've just completed today a series of open table conversations, for example, which is five days of lunchtime conversations where people come in, 25 people have lunch and talk about cities as diverse as play in the city, justice, ageing, housing and climate. And... Uh, that plus talks tomorrow and other parts of the programme are giving us this opportunity to really debate and discuss how we're going to care for and plan for the Dublin of the future. And, and it's, it's interesting that you have that word, word in there, care for and yeah. plan for, because it really strikes me, Lionheart, that what you are about, it's about care, it's about emotion, it's about the link between architecture health, care, sustaining oneself, never mind sustaining the city, sustaining yourself and the effect that buildings can quite simply have on you. Where did that all start for you? Uh, There's a long story to this, but essentially when I finished my degree, I had like... You were studying architecture. I was studying architecture. And when I left, I had a bout of depression and anxiety and I needed to find places that mitigated my mental health, that made me feel like I could just float and not worry about the life that I was living at the time. And I found the Barbican uh, in, in, in Logan. Yeah. And I'm telling you now, it felt like like visual acupuncture. It felt like I was in a space that really cared about how I felt. And at that moment, I could write poems. I could speak my expressions. I could call my friends who I was having arguments with. I could really feel at peace. So and this is when you walked into the... And you went in here as a kind of a, a therapy for yourself. Yes, yeah, of course. What, what was it about that particular building that made it so therapeutic for you. So I've been studying this for the longest time and I think I've got such a preferential bias to the the confidence that is exuded through brutalist architecture. And for me, I can be in that place and just feel so secure and safe. It's the way they have ball bearings on the train tracks where it absorbs the vibrations of the trains. It, it has this terrace house and it stops the sound of the traffic from... Everything mm. is so catered for in terms of your, your, your sensory well-being. 
And I feel that way as soon as you enter the space. And again, that sounds like a kind of a, a contradiction in terms that brutalist architecture. <laughs> Don't get me started. Because, <laughs> you know, I was thinking, well, he's going to talk about, oh, I walked into the space and there was this lovely big glass open area and the light was streaming in on top of me and I felt nature pouring in. <laughs> No, no, brutalism. Brutalism, yeah, it's definitely a thing which soothes my spirit. And um, a lot of people hate it. I don't know why. I, I tend to not trust people who don't like brutalist architecture. Oh, oh, I'm in trouble now. <laughs> <laughs> You've tested your testing. Me. Um, Emmett, for you, is there such a space as Lionheart has in, in the Barbican or had in that? I presume you still go in there occasionally, Lionheart. Is there such a space as that for you in Dublin or anywhere in the country, in fact? Well, there is. And I mean, we have an affinity, I think. And this is one of the, th- the reasons we connect for brutalist architecture. And I'm a huge fan of the much loathed and also much loved Fibsborough Shopping Centre, for example, which we're going to go and see tomorrow because it also has a, this energy and confidence, I think, and a kind of, uh, what's the word, an emotional component that, that really makes you feel something in the way that Lionheart has been describing. And when did you, when did you discover that, you know, when things are bad, Time for a trip out to Time for <laughs> well, a little walk around the shopping centre. I mean, sometimes, sometimes uh, the way you feel about a building is also about the way buildings act in the community. And I know in Fibsborough, where I live, actually, mm. by coincidence, um, that building has become a kind of a, a conduit for all kinds of debates and discussions about the future of the place. So people gather around it, they talk about it, they debate it. There's been a lot of controversy over the years about what it would be in the future. And when you when you experience that, and you experience it as part of people's kind of attachment to place and place making, when they're using it as a way of considering their future and even if people don't like it they're still talking about it and they're gathering in rooms to debate um, what you really then see as an architect and as what you see as someone in, in the work that mm. I do is people really investing time and consideration and really sort of taking control and ownership of their future of a place so sometimes we get you know too concerned about whether we like things or not. Yeah. And that can be really useful, but also at a certain moment, you just have to say, well, what is this thing doing for us? And what can it, how can it yeah. help us achieve change in yeah. the places what, that we live? What do I feel, I guess? Exactly, is, what do is, I feel and what do you feel? So yeah. it, it enables you to listen to other people and figure out what they're thinking too. The route then from uh, from the, the studying of architecture, and architecture was in your family. So, yes. you know, the, the kind of the presumption was, I, I think your dad was an architect. And, and his dad. And his dad was an architect. <laughs> And you've decided to be a poet. You can imagine the conversation. That was a, an interesting um, <laughs> chat over the in a brutalist building or at oh, home. I, I mean, listen, it was a brutal conversation. <laughs> it definitely was. I think you know. At some point, he realised that his son was definitely following in the footsteps. But I needed to create my own world. I needed to create my own building as a career, which is going to help other people. And there's a quote by James Baldwin which says, "Those who suffer can help other people suffer less." And I feel like that was the role I took after leaving architecture. I think a lot of architects take on an intentionality about, you know, how we can make a space, enable a community inclusion, how we can enable people to feel like they have a career prospect outside of their circumstance. For me, it was how can I create work, create art, which allows us to want to feel our true selves again. And that's what I do. And there, there was a moment where, where you walking past an architect's practice and they called you in. Are you in saying, hey, get a job, but maybe not the job that they thought you were going to ask for. I, I had such a, a challenging experience, I guess, trying to get into the world of architecture, finishing my degree. And I, I guess, you know, you're, you're talking about the premise of me doing residencies with yes. firms. Yeah. And there were some doors that were, were closed, but there were some people that just opened, they flung their doors open to me. And when we say residency, you, you're, you walk into a busy architect's building and you say, yeah. listen, I want to be a poet, want to be a poet in residence. <laughs> That's exactly how I said it. It's like, I'm, I'm curious about being a poet in residence. And it was never done before. 
Yeah. There, there hasn't been a, a legacy of poets interactively and, and consistently working with architecture practices to change how we approach public spaces, housing, how we even approach as the, the architectural aesthetics to what soothes people. For me, it's, all right, can we do something with the discipline of poetry and the discipline of architecture and create something that changes the way we think? And, you know, and when you say it, I kind of go, it's like the penny suddenly drops at the number of times that a poet sitting in front of me would talk about the architecture yeah. of the poem, the structure of the poem, the space within mm. the poem, all of those terms that you would use in an architectural situation. How surprised were you, Emmett, by this idea? Well, there's a guy who does poetry in residence for architecture firms? Yeah, I suppose I'm always curious. I mean, I've, I've worked in architecture for a very long time, mm. so I'm always trying to figure out ways of... Uh, re-accessing the subject because it's complex but it isn't that complicated you know and when I encountered first encountered uh, Leinhardt's work in film as well mm. which is also a way that he uses his poetry when we're working together on, on the Venice Biennale where he made this incredible film which is dealing with this topic of feelings and built environment which is being shown tomorrow night in the lighthouse as well and I suppose I sat down on the floor and watched that film for the first time uh, and was kind of incredibly moved by its, it, the way that it re-presented re ar architecture subject with which I'm so familiar um, mm. back to I, I'm, myself. I'm sorry now to embarrass you, Emmett. It, it, not were you incredibly moved. I think you <laughs> started to you, cry. You, you, yeah, you yeah. burst out into tears. I know I did. It's so fine to burst into tears, but that's a very strong, I mean, obviously there was a, some kind of touchstone within the film that there really is. hit you. Well, I mean, it was partly to do with the context, right? Because we'd been working on this project in Venice for two years and mm. it's high emotion and all of that. And then you're working with someone like Lionheart at a distance about this film and mm. we're all kind of hoping and waiting for the screen to actually work and for the film to be shown. And then you sit down on the floor and then the combination of poetry, really strong, beautiful visuals and music. And, and it so kind of captured the message of, of the Biennale yeah. that was curated by Leslie Loco, but it was just such a special moment. Uh, and it, poetry always, I think, has this power to help you navigate the world and present ordinary things mm. back to yourself in a way that's really profound. Mm. So for architecture, it's a really potent tool, I think. The Absence of Light is a poem that you've brought in for us tonight, yes. uh, Lionheart, and you might read that. Let's let's hear it first and we can talk a bit about it afterwards rather than explaining it all beforehand. OK, no problem. This, this poem is called The Absence of Light. Light bleeds through the dark recess of an incision, a terminal idea with a fading gradient, carefully emerging as though an umbilical cord is wrapped around its potential. Here, the architect prepares us for what hasn't fully bloomed, Light is an eager actor in this theatrical performance. Its part to play must be directed. Architects are playwrights of light, but master architects are playwrights of its absence. They know we enter an audience member, expectations first, feet second, hoping for a suspension of disbelief. Only if the stage design of our curiosity is fed to crave more. This illusion of absence. Zumpther does this really well. I like the way Luis Barragan or Frank Lloyd Wright frame, the way light is threaded, sewn and embroidered into the fabric of their buildings, a resonance curiously dripping through an expanse. Remember, I came from cookie-cutter suburbia, so there's a monotony that reeks in anything that feels like it's been here before and hasn't found the beauty in the application of its absence. 
That's Leinhardt uh, reading his poem, The Absence of Light. And Leinhardt is in studio with me this evening, along with Emmett Scanlon, talking about the Open House Festival, Festival of Architecture, I suppose we could say, uh, currently running in Dublin. The Absence of Light, I thought the absence was a really um, important aspect of what you're talking about there. And this idea that, yeah, great architects mm. know how to use light. Yeah. Great master architects know what to do with no light. Yeah. It, it, it struck me about the 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 presence, uh, the, the similarities between that and poetry in some mm. ways. It's not the words that you put down on the page that are the, always the important ones. It's the ones that you don't put down. I feel like you're a poet secretly. I've <laughs> Loads of things it. secretly. Yeah. Don't be worrying. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've always noticed that, you know, specificity is so important in the world that we work in. In poetry, it's the words that we don't use sometimes that creates these these uh, moments of escapism. Because you want to lose yourself in architecture mm. sometimes. You, you go there with an expectation of, allow me to feel a certain way. It's like a relationship with your, your wife, your husband. You want them to give you a feeling. Poetry does that through its specificity, through its selection of words and tone as well. And when you think about the absence of light, there's almost this you know feeling of being cradled by a sensitivity because someone has given you just enough to feel seen. Have you had to walk around any parts of Dublin yet? Because you're, 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 the event tomorrow is called Cities Have Feelings. Have you? My, my friend, I am fresh from the airport. I am not going <laughs> to lie to you right now. I smell that's good. Fine. I'm just going to let you know. <laughs> but I am fresh from the airport. <laughs> no, that's fine. I just wondered, had you, had you had any experience? And it's fine. Fresh from the airport is an experience in and of itself. But you haven't really got to look at not much yet, Not yet. just yet. Not just yet. There's a little brutal. Yeah. yeah, and just tomorrow. And there's a little brutalism to look in around yep. this campus too before he that's before true. he we'll leaves. wander around after. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So yeah. There you go. There's, hey, there's yeah. a little, little, little trip in the darkness. In the hey, I yes. see you in the <laughs> in the absence of light. Listen, wonderful to to speak with both of you. And let me just get the full detail. Yes, of of the event. Um, Emmett Scanlon and Rail Lionheart Cape. Although I would stick with Lionheart. I like that a lot. Both of them will be at the Cities Have Feeling events, along with Finn Williams, City Architect of Malmo, at the Lighthouse Cinema tomorrow evening. Details of this event and details of the Open House Dublin and everything else happening there can be found on openhousedublin.com Caroline Campbell is the director of the National Gallery of Ireland. She's also the author of a new book, her first, The Power of Art, A World History in 15 Cities. From ancient Babylon and Jerusalem to modern-day Brasilia and Pyongyang, this is the story of art across 4,000 years. I'm delighted to have Caroline Campbell with me in studio, who has just admitted to me her love of brutalist architecture. I adore brutalist architecture. It's lovely to be with you here tonight, (laughs) Sean. No, I think well created, it is among the the most mm. beautiful and the most creative of of, 19, of 20th century art architecture. And it struck me as I was speaking to to both Emmett Scanlon and, and uh, Lionheart that m- much of what they were talking about feeds into what you're talking about in your book. Um, the power of art. Yes. That's a very important word to have chosen for the title of your book. I think the word power, though I must say mm. as an Ulster woman, it's impossible to say. Um, it is a very important term because I'm thinking about power in two main senses. One is the emotional and visceral power of art. And the other is the relationship that it often has to power structures. Both factors are very important to me and very important to how I thought about and created the idea for this book. So what you're what you're looking about across 5,000 years are those kind of power structures and power relationships 
between the artist and society, between the, the product of the artist and society or, or what? I suppose what I'm most interested in is how you can put the humanity of the artist and also of the looker and the user back into a story which can become a story which is very much about elites mm. and doesn't make it so easy for you at least superficially to tell that human story. And yet what I've discovered by my life of loving art and also of working on this book is that there are so many human stories that can connect you to mm. the world of the past through art which are actually more profound and often deeper and more emotional than those we find in documents. There's a lovely story you tell in the introduction to the book and it, you know, you think of Michelangelo, you think, oh, you know, master painter, Sistine Chapel, etc., etc. You don't think ordinary man. Well, I think that's the thing is that he was both. Um, Great creators, great producers are both great in that sense, but they are also ordinary people. And I start the book with Michelangelo's shopping list, one of several. He kept an extraordinary archive of papers, of jottings from his writings. He was a wonderful poet, by the way, Mm. as well, too, um, to his thoughts about what he was creating and also his shopping. And I find it profoundly moving to think about Michelangelo thinking what he was going to eat in early 1518 and also what he was going to serve his guests. He was a social person as well. Very much so from the shopping but we we need to be very clear about the nature of this shopping list. I don't know what yours are like, Caroline. Mine are not like Michelangelo's. (laughs) I just write the words down and put a big line through them when I've got that thing into the shopping basket. Explain what his looked like. Well, his, he was sending someone out to do his shopping who was probably illiterate and he was clearly worried because Michelangelo also was a total control freak about what this person would bring back. Mm. And so it's not just the food, but it also is about how it's to be displayed. There is fish on this menu and the shopping list shows fish delicately arranged over a ceramic bowl looking so beautiful. There was pasta. It was going to be seasonal. There was going to be wine to wash it down too. This was in Lent and so they couldn't eat meat. But he's very concerned about the quality and about the presentation. I was going to say the presentation is really what struck me. The control thing is interesting there and it's something that we'll come up to maybe a little bit later because you've chosen essentially 15 cities, 15 time periods across a 4,000 year time span, which is inevitably you have to kind of choose 15 and and, and run with that. But you start back in Babylon 4,000 years before the, the Christian era and anybody who's looked at anything in Western art will have heard of the Tower of Babel and that will have informed so many things in terms of how we view art. What did you want to maybe discover or uncover by going right back to the the origins of that tower? I think I'm really fascinated by the idea that art is something which humans have always made and done and it's one of the characteristics that actually separates us from other mammals. And so I wanted to go back to Babylon because it is not the only great civilization Mm. of that time but it's probably the one that we in the West because of the Tower of Babel are most familiar with. And to look at why things were made. Things were made for structure. They were made for shelter. They were made for religion and also for communication. And I do find it incredibly moving to find in our museums around the world the fragments of this society and place, but still surviving after all these thousands of years. Babylon is a story of incredible endurance and resilience. The place has changed dramatically. Mm. It was during the Iraq war, um, a camp um, for the for the coalition forces, but it still survives. And the, 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 the sighting of that camp, you mentioned this in the chapter, the sighting of that camp 
is, you know, when you hear about it, you just think it it's a travesty. It is, but it also reminds us again of this theme of the power of art, that thousands of years after this place made and existed, it was still very powerful in propaganda terms, although that was not what was said, clearly to place it there. Yeah, and just we should explain wh- what that site was and why it. Why I'm saying it was a travesty in many ways. Yes, I mean Babylon's also history has become really complicated in the 20th century. It was an arche- archaeological site which then was really much beloved by Saddam Hussein um, and Saddam Hussein in fact made a, built a palace just outside Babylon and created in this bricks which were stamped mm. with his name and titles in exactly the way that Nebuchadnezzar and the ancient kings of Babylon had done thousands of years before. Sadly, Jerusalem, I think, is Jerusalem the second city? Jerusalem that, is the second city. It's the city. second city yes. that you go to. Yes. And, and it's hardly surprising that faith is the the subject in and around Jerusalem. Clearly this week has been week, a, a yeah. terrible news Appalling. set of news stories from that part of the world. Mm. But what you're looking at, ironically, in this city of Jerusalem is the multi-faith representation across the art in the city and how these art pieces live happily together. And also in different places. Mm. In in Jerusalem I've structured my chapter around a building, the Temple of Jerusalem which has been built and rebuilt and destroyed um, and which does not exist in Jerusalem anymore but is there in other forms in that city, in the Dome of the Rock um, in St Peter's Basilica in Rome and also in the city of Istanbul um, across the Mediterranean in Turkey in uh, the great mm. Suleymaniye Mosque so it's about the survival of an idea idea, an idea of faith and what architecture means from it and also about how this has meant things to people of many different faiths and they've interpreted in their own ways. Must have been incredibly difficult in terms of choosing 15 cities because inevitably you you had to leave some out that I'm sure, you know, you know the two that I'm going to mention <laughs> practically immediately. Paris is not part of your story. I know. Berlin is not part I of know. your story. But I think your reasoning behind this is is sound, so you might explain it. Well, my reasoning is that really I am telling a story of art, which is um, one which is more than just outside Europe and America. Mm. For me, it was very important to have that perspective of other continents as well, too. Um, And of course, I am a European, so my perspective is very much shaped by that and how I look at it. But I did want to challenge people to look at the unfamiliar or in places where we might not expect to find art. Because also art is all around us, but it's something that a lot of us find hard Mm. to think about where the language of art is something which is not natural to many of us. And yet we are so adept at decoding visual images. We know how to walk around a building and to know it. This really is part of our lives, but we often don't think it. You do. I mentioned the the idea of control. You mentioned Michelangelo was basically with with his famous shopping list, the drawn shopping list. I will have that type of fish and it will be in this type of ceramic bowl. Don't come back with something else. Thank you very much. Although we also know from Michelangelo's life that most things were not as he wished them to be and he spent his entire life agonising about the circumstances he was in and the things that were outside Mm. his control. But yes, control is important. And it comes particularly in the final chapter in the the book, which is because it spans 4,000 years and it does so chronologically. We make our way through the the time periods. So we're in contemporary Pyongyang. Why did you choose, or Pyongyang, I beg your pardon, why did you choose that city 
and why this idea of control when talking well, about I, their... Well, I, I wanted to I wanted to look at one of the 20th or 21st century cities where architecture has really been used to control and to determine how people move around a space, mm. how they think, how they behave, how they go about the ordinary parts of their life. And I thought about Moscow. I thought about many of the, of, of the dictatorships. But then I settled on Pyongyang because partly it's a place that it's been impossible for me to visit except through the media of Google Earth Um, and also because it ties so much to the sense that architecture can be used like art for purposes which are bad as well as good. So power is not always a good thing. Power is not always a good thing Mm. but yet there is also equivocally a lot to admire in the way in which North Koreans think about their city, think about architecture and but the role that it plays is very ambivalent. The, I, I want to finish with New York because I, I particularly thought that section gets into what many of us think of as one of the highlights of the power of art, the power of rebellion, the power of the individual. And you start, in fact, in that period with the crash, yes. with, the, with the, the Wall Street crash in the, in the early part of the 20th century. And you bring us right up to the to the 70s. What do you feel that New York not the capital city, let us no, remember. No, never, never America. the capital city of um, America. Do you feel that it kind of not being the capital, was there something about that space, that energy that created these wonderful individuals like Warhol, Warhol of course, who were, we can see in the Hugh Lane the at the moment. The Lane. Yeah. No, I do think that there is an incredible energy about New York. You don't need to go there to mm. just to feel the excitement that there is of that palpitating streets, everything crushed into a really quite small space. And I think one of the real ironies of the success of American art in the 20th century, think of Warhol, think of Jackson Pollock, think even of Louise Bourgeois, who I write about a lot. Their, their art was one of rebellion. It was one of being against the structures of society and yet it's become so incredibly successful. Yeah, and it is a great set of stories that we get get within that. Warhol up at the Q Lane, so I should give you a chance to, to remind us about what's on in your own spot <laughs> house at the moment. Laverian location um, going on in the gallery. Very different style of, I think this is a different aspect of John Lavery's art. This is an aspect here. of Lavery's art that is about his experience of the world around him. Lavery, of course, is famous to us as a portraitist. We mm. all know his pictures of the of, of the people involved in the foundation of the state. But this is Lavery and the life that he lived, the people he loved, the places he went back to, and his own, I think, sense of humanity and deep engagement and expressed through these very lively paintings. I defy anybody to go into this exhibition and not come out of it feel expired by the joy of Lavery and of life. Well, there you go. That's the power of the artistic director, isn't it? You get to show us different sides of, of artists and get us to look at things in a different way or help us to do Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, long, long may that power continue. And Thank indeed, you. congratulations on the book, The Power of Art by Dr. Caroline Campbell, published by the Bridge Street Press and the exhibition Lavery on Location is at the National Gallery through until the 14th of January, nationalgallery.ie for full details.
Now, as you may well know, we are coming to you live from the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary next Tuesday. I'll be interviewing Claire Keegan about her a new novel, So Late in the Day, and we'll be looking at some of the previous works as well, including Foster and small things like these. The live show, I'm sorry to say, is sold out at this stage, but you can listen to us live here on RTE Radio 1. We will be on air from 7 o'clock as usual, coming live from the Pavilion on next Tuesday evening. But if you're still thinking, you know, I'd like to go out to Dunleary, I'm a bit of a jaunt by the sea you can come out to us again the following Friday week October the 27th we will also be in the Pavilion Theatre that night it will be to announce the winners of the RTE Short Story Competition 2023 we'll hear from our judges Claire Kilroy Ferdia McConaughey and Kathleen McMahon the shortlisted writers will be there each of the stories will have a live performance before the judges award their top prizes uh, that those top prizes being 5,000 for the 5,000 euro for the winner second prize 4,000 euro third prize 3,000 euro and a further seven runners up will receive 250 euro each as well as a broadcast of their story here on uh, RTE Radio 1 so if you want to find out about how to get tickets etc go to paviliontheatre.ie forward slash events and you'll find Arena Short Story in the midst of that particular part of the website nail-biting night of readings and winner announcements that's what's ahead of us on Friday October the 27th however on this Friday evening time to put our headphones on and listen back to our album reviews on the decks tonight Alan Corr Nadine O'Regan two big Irish albums on offer Kira Thompson better known to all of us of course as CMAT she's back with her much anticipated second album Crazy Mad For Me described as quote an abstract breakup album Dundalk's Mary Wallopers, often compared to the Dubliners and the Pogues, uh, with their mix of traditional and political, bring us an album called Irish Rock and Roll. And the non-Irish album tonight is from the United States, a savage frontman um, of Parquet Courts, who has released his second solo album, which is called Several Songs About Fire. But let's start with CMAT. We're going to listen to a track called California, but be warned, there is a little bit of language in the midst of this. New game, scrapping my life. It was you out back with the butter knife who took my parts, buried them with the dog. Not great, but what did I think? Did a bouncy castle Catholic give me? And there we have California, uh, one of the tracks on Crazy Mad from me from CMAT, her second album, Alan Corr and Nadine O'Regan with me in studio this evening. I suppose, Alan, you know, after the first album, if my wife knew I, I would be dead, you kind of thought, where is she going to go after that? She, it was such a big success. She really laid down a marker. And you're thinking, oh, here we go into the that old cliche of the difficult second album. Not if you're CMAT. It's not no, a difficult second no, album. No, absolutely not. And I think it's worth doing a pot of history over. This is, of course, Kira Mary Alice Thompson mm. from Fingless. And she won the Choice Music Award last year, sold out two nights in the Olympia. She just announced her biggest Dublin gig, Fairview Park, next summer. She's doing four mm. nights in the Olympia this time. And this follow-up, Crazy Mad for Me, I think it expands on the themes, but musically, it is, I think it's years ahead. It's mm. it's almost muso in its sophistication, John. The band she has now are extremely good. These are very warm, classic uh, sounding songs. The country, the country kind of influence has all but dissipated and given way yeah. to this much more kind of Southern Californian rock and roll, very kind of uh, Laurel Canyon yeah. uh, kind of stuff. And her voice 
just gets better, I think. Yeah, and um, you know, the New York Times don't agree with you, by the way, um, uh, Alan. CMAT makes country music's sad, smart and strange is uh, the, uh, the the headline on a New York Times profile of CMAT today. Mm. I suppose maybe they're referring back to the first album. Are you with uh, Alan Nadine in terms of that? The Laura the, Canyon album? Yeah, that this um, has moved, changed a little bit from that? I think she's definitely brought in indie a lot more. And what I found very interesting was, um, you know, when I used to talk to people about CMAT, uh, they would say, I know she's great, but I'm not that into country. Whereas with, say, a recent single like Have Fun, I literally mm. saw some of my more indie kind of yeah, loving yeah. friends turn around and prick up their ears and go, who's that and what is that song? And it she has moved in that direction where she has a number of tracks that are, I think, more straightforwardly pop indie electronica numbers, if you can call that straightforward mm. as, a, <laughs> as a sort as of a melange. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, the country is always there, I think, in the vocal intonations and particularly in the honesty and you know the, the style of writing she will talk about heartbreak she will put in a, a, a pithy line and she is a little bit like say um, well you know the, not to say she's like Morrissey but she has that wit of a Morrissey or a James Murphy from LCD Sound System where you don't just want to listen to the music you want to really listen to the mm-hmm. lyrics because yeah. she's writing when she actually when she won the prize, uh, choice prize uh, last year um, or earlier this year she um she she did, wasn't there herself to take the prize, but she had somebody ex- else accept on her behalf, and it was one of the best acceptance speeches I've ever heard. I just thought this person and it was is her, remarkable. Her, did they, did they hand, did, did had Seamat handed the the speech giver the words? Yes, exactly. Ah, right. And the essay was just remarkable. Mm. And I found myself thinking, I'd love to read a book by her because um, <laughs> she she kind of cut straight to the heart. And I'm so glad that she didn't really bask in the success of say the Choice Prize or some of the glowing accolades yeah. from the likes of the enemy or whatever she literally forged straight ahead and actually if anything she was seemed almost a little bit of impatient to, that she wasn't getting even more airplay in say Ireland Alright well let's have a listen to um, the song that you mentioned had all your indie friends pricking their ears up when they heard this new kind of possibly maybe new sounds too strong but different side to CMAT this is Have Fun From CMAT, uh, from her new album, um, which we're talking about this evening here on the new album called Crazy Mad for Me. That's kind of, um, is that uh, going to send them? I was thinking of the big bangers that there were in the first the first album, you know, yeah. Don't Really Care For You, I Want To Be A Cowboy, etc, etc. Nashville. Yeah. Mm. Is that going to kind of... I, I think so. I get think out there and dance I, I think it's the hookiest song yeah. on, on the album um, and it also features the best vocal rhyme of Clapham and Happen, Happen since Up the Junction by Squeeze. I think she's kind of really shown a, a much wider array of influences here uh, and she's she's a magpie eye for pop culture references. Mm. And in that song, California, and it's the it's the law that every artist has to eventually have a song called California, Sean. She used the expression, the expression, bouncy castle castle. Catholic, which as opposed to a castle, a castle Catholic. So she's a very witty writer. And if her first album was full of those fizzy country pop indebted songs, I think this album goes deeper. Ah, right. uh, it's got more heartbreak on it. Okay. But, can, but can I actually yeah. just add the, the line have fun? It made me think a lot about, you know, Sinead O'Connor slash Prince with uh, I went to the doctor and guess yeah. what he told me, girl, you better go and have, have fun, fun now. Yeah. And, and the way she delivers that line, have fun, 
there's something about it that's there's a, a plaintive quality in mm. there where she's like, okay, have fun, have fun. You know, there's something about the insistence that yeah. even though the song is bouncy and happy, there's I think there little, are layers there's there. There's a little tinge underneath it. Starts from you on this one, Nadine. Oh, and for, and I think she's going to go on and do even better. It is remarkable to watch her. All right. What are you mm. saying, Al? Uh, very solid four as well. She's got a great sense of humour. Yeah, OK. Solid four from both of you. And that big um, announcement of the biggest uh, Irish headliner to date, Fairview Park gig, uh, that's in summer of 2024. Four sold out nights in the three Olympia. So, yeah, she's certainly gone somewhere. The New York Times writing about her as well. Has to be good. Let us move on to album number two from the Mary Wallopers. It's simply called Irish Rock and Roll. Uh, new album is called New Irish Rock and Roll. They're very, I suppose what we get here is versions of traditional songs, some original compositions, very political in places, unapologetically so. It takes its aim at Irish society, landlords, the clergy, anti-immigrants, all of this, these kind of uh, people are targeted uh, with, with in this, but we'll have a listen. We'll have a listen first of all, just to uh, whoa, whoa, what have I done there? Go back here. Yes, I was trying to move something. Now go there. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> we'll have a listen to a song that gives us a sense of their style. There we go. The holy ground. <laughs> When, from the Mary Wallopers when I finally got my computer to work for me. And um, the holy ground um, there from their new album, Irish Rock and Roll. You, you can't, when, I, when I listen to it, I can't help smiling. I can't kind of help bouncing up and down in the chair. And I'm wondering, where have they pitched this particular <laughs> style of Irish music? It, Alan? it is what I call DIY diddly eye. Um, and I think they've done very well out of it. They're, they're you know, seven-piece band now uh, from Dundalk. They've really expanded. They came, they came a bit of a phenomenon during lockdown, and they started doing these kind of live streams in their home studio, got 40,000 viewers uh, for some of them. And they've come back with an expanded lineup and I think a bigger yeah. sense of ambition. So this is essentially a bunch of covers like uh, that song there, The Holy Ground, which is about uh, mm, Queenstown mm. and County Cork, the bold O'Donoghue, loads, and four of their own songs. I thought it was an elaborate joke. Uh, it's so hackneyed. Uh, Nadine was just saying there during the break that that sounds like Cotton Eye Joe, the banjo playing. Yeah. However... And that I didn't say that as a bad thing, though. No, yeah. no, it's a fine I was, song. I, I was going to say, you're saying DIY... Diddly, diddly eye. eye. But yeah. There's more going on than DIY. I was just going to say, there are diddly. very good musicians. Yeah. Okay. Oh, listen, <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, like, I was coming to this album with a certain amount of respect for the band based on their obvious musical abilities mm. and talent, but at the same time, putting up my hand and saying, look, this wouldn't be the genre I would go to, you know, of an evening generally. And I'd, you know, the first album. It it was it was good, but it wouldn't have been totally my cup of tea if I'm honest. And with this album, they're so tight musically, yeah, and yeah. the sense of ambition from it is actually, and confidence from it is very evident. And the way they pace things is very very smart. You know, they have light and shade, they have slower numbers, more upbeat numbers, and there's mm. sometimes this melancholy and merriment within the space of the same song. And like honestly. They made me want to get up and dance. And yeah. like, we review so many albums that are headphones albums. This is not a headphones album. This is mm. a put it on in the pub, put it on in the kitchen, have a little bop. Turn it up loud. 
<laughs> turn it up loud in the kitchen. It's great and, fun. But yeah. do be, do be, uh, you have to listen to the lyrics of some of the songs, particularly, I suppose, their own compositions. Yes. There's a lot of politics in it. We're going to listen to one called The Idler. And again, be warned, there's, there's a little bit of explicit, uh, ex- expletives, colourful language in the midst of this song. But you'll hear very quickly who their targets are in The Idler. There you go, The Idler um, from the Mary Wallopers and that from their, their new album, Irish Rock and Roll. And there you get a sense of what I think you Nadine was talking about there, Alan, this idea that they know how to pace things. So you have, you know, we're all kind of bouncing around to well, the holy ground and then... No, yeah, just have a little listen to what we were, what no, we're saying. I mean, here not as well. to put too fine a point on it, Sean. These are songs about drinking and riding. That's essentially what these songs are about. But then you hear a song like The Idler, mm. and it just comes out of, out of the blue in its serious nature. And the one that really got me was another of their own original compositions, Gates of Heaven. And the interesting thing is uh, they're, they, they kind of are cut from the same cloth as Lancome, but they're certainly not as austere and dark mm. as Lancome, Lancome. But it's interesting to note that the four of their own compositions on this album are far more angry and political than the cover versions or the trad hour versions that they do elsewhere by the likes of the Clancy Brothers and the Pecker Dunn. So they have got something the, to say. Yeah, and even it, it had to be fair, I think your your two descriptive words of the songs, a lot of those ballads, there's a darkness underneath them Certainly, as well yeah, as, uh, yeah. you know, the, the activities that are being described. Uh, and, and I wonder sometimes in, in the kind of fun versions of the covers, do we miss out what they give us in their own songs, Nadine? Mm, yeah, maybe a little bit, but I, they're certainly growing as a band because if I'm correct in thinking, the first album didn't really have uh, original numbers. Um, so this is... The is, fact that they have the courage to put those on here. Yeah, and they forward. sit very well yeah. alongside. And actually, one thing that I really noticed about that particular track, uh, The Idler, is the intonation reminded me a lot of um, Paul Brady and their influences. Wow. Mm-hmm. You know, you always hear them being talked about in the same sort of yeah. mention as, say, the... Uh, the Pogues and so on. But actually there are other influences there too that are very interesting and the musicality again is just so evident on a track like say Rich Man and the Poor Man which is just hand drumming and very rhythmic singing. Yeah, there's some baron pieces with just vocals over it that are great as well. They are so Mm. working in unison with each other and it's clearly the sound of a band who have toured and toured and toured and are very selective about how uh, and when people are allowed to, you know, because because the original band was just three guys and like two brothers and their friend in Dundalk and then when they added uh, other musicians for the uh, seven piece that they would become it's quite obvious that they were very very careful about how they did that because the sound is so tight All right stars from you Alan uh, well, I think uh, they're going to get even more successful and uh, even bigger, uh, but I don't think they're ever going to lose their outsider reputation. I mean, I'll give this three out of five. And what are you saying, Nadine? I actually went with 4.2. Um, <laughs> One, two. Whoa. <laughs> because for me, even though, like I was saying, it wouldn't initially be my genre, you know, it wouldn't be my cup of tea. Um, what they're doing is, you know, the, by far the best kind of version of that sound that I've heard in a long, long okay. time. And it made me smile. And I think very few albums manage that. These days. 4.2 is quite an unusual star rating, (laughs) but I will accept it, seeing as it's a Friday. Okay, let us move on to our final album from this evening, or for this evening, several songs about fire from A Savage. Let's have a listen to David's Dead. (laughs) 
And I have a little flavour of uh, David's Dead from A Savage. Explain who A Savage is to us, first of all, uh, if you would, Nadine. So he is frontman of the quite successful band Parquet Chords and he has uh, released one album, one solo album previously to this album, several songs about fire. And he's somebody that, you know, in a certain kind of indie rock fraternity, people would certainly pay attention mm. to uh, and, a, and sort of... F- kind of sits within that sort of elegantly um, loud sort of sound where every he's a little bit disaffected, a little bit listless yeah. a lot of the time and attracts maybe a, a very passionate but more minority kind of fan base, if that's fair to say. And what is he singing about? Pain. Uh, <laughs> I think he's, singing, he's recently, he's actually from Denton, Texas. Yeah. Uh, and he moved to, to New York when he was quite young, became successful with Parquet Courts. But he left New York recently, about a year ago, and moved to Paris. So I think this is somewhat of a concept album. Certainly the songs are we woven from his experiences of New York, uh, Ridge, uh, Ridgeway in uh, Queens in New York. And it's full of, they're populated by strange characters, kind of crazy nights out, stuff like that. It's a very retrospective album in that he's looking back, probably from his uh, his garret in, in uh, Paris, looking back on his days in New York. Uh, uh, so is it the cobbles that he's writing, uh, are they in, in Paris? No, that is a song. That was one of the only songs that's not about New York. That is about Paris. That's and it's one Paris. of the nicer songs on mm-hmm. the album. Okay, we'll really listen to about a minute of it. There we go, uh, Riding Cobbles from A Savage and his new album, Several Songs About Fire. It has the the, the whiff of possible gimmickry about it, or is there more going on in that song than I'm hearing at first listening, Alan? That song there is not terribly representative of the rest of the album. That's a fairly Mm. pretty waltz-time sing-along tune. I think the rest of it, to me, reminds me more of the likes of Jonathan Richman, Towns Van Zandt, Bill Callahan, even Father John Misty. I mean, Nadine is right, he's very dissolute, he's very disaffected. It has a kind of a frayed at the edges, slacker rock quality that reminded me of Pavement, actually. Right. Okay. Stars from you on this one. What are you saying overall? I I liked Um, it. I'm going to give it four. You're going to give it a a, a pretty solid four. What are you saying on this one, Nadine, overall? I just, I found it very dreary. Two and a half. That bad? I just, it just, there was just more of it. It just kept, it felt longer than it actually was. (laughs) 2.2 2.2 okay. no so alright um, uh, uh, by the way on the subject of the Mary Wallopers uh, and I love when people differ in opinion going to see them in Belfast in December can't wait says Siobhan they are the new Foster and Alan don't know if I would Whoa. necessarily but there you go and then from Anne what's happened to you all at all at all what a crowd of chancers of the Mary Wallopers Paul Brady question mark question mark the vocal intonation <laughs> musicality <laughs> musicality question mark question mark Ah, uh, come on! If you look at if you uh, yeah, look at any of the live videos, yeah, and and you want to hear, I'd say looking the, at them live is the Pogues and the Dubliners, Sean, and you can't go wrong. All oh, right, um, but isn't it great for people to have opinions? That is our lot for this Friday evening. Oh, did I tell you the names of the three albums? Crazy Mad for me from C Mad, Irish Rock and Roll from Mary Wallopers, several songs about fire from A Savage, Paula Shields and Leah Murphy research this evening. Ollie Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator. Harry Bookus was our sound supervisor, and tonight's program was. 
was produced by Reg Luby. Back with you Monday, 7 o'clock here on RT Radio 1. Join me on Lyric FM on Sunday afternoon between 1 and 4, if you're so inclined. Have a great weekend. Good luck to the boys uh, in green on Saturday and Saturday night, tomorrow night. Yeah, yep. let's hope we are celebrating this time uh, Sunday. Uh, John Creedon will be with you after the news.